Father, we ask that as we open up your word now that you would open up our hearts and minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, we ask that your voice would be louder and clearer than all of the other voices in our life. We pray, God, that you would break in to the crevices in our heart, that you would bring us hope and encouragement and joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we've been in a series over the last several weeks entitled Every Square Inch. And over the last few weeks, we looked specifically at the topic of marriage. In the next couple weeks, we're going to talk together about parenting and kids and life in the neighborhood and work and some other topics. And so that's kind of what's ahead. But today, what I wanted to do is I just wanted to drill down in the main theme of the series itself. And I was talking to my wife yesterday after the sermon, and she said, you know, um, why didn't you do the introduction at the very first of the series? You know, she's a linear person, because this is kind of like an introduction to the whole series. And so I just want to say, if you are a non-linear person, this sermon is for you. This is, I did this for you today. If you're linear, you're just going to have to, you know, kind of like, uh, going to be Okay. So the title of this series, Every Square Inch, is a riff on a statement that was made by a very well-known theologian and pastor and uh, educator, and uh, he was a leader. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands. He started a university, the Free University in Amsterdam, and his name was Abraham Kuyper. And in his inaugural address, at the very launch of the university in uh, Amsterdam that he was starting, he made this statement, and he said this, He said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. He says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. And you know, that statement and the biblical and the theological truth that undergirds it has been incredibly and powerfully formative in my own life. In many ways, it has stood for as a corrective for some of the malformed ways in which I had originally viewed the Christian life. So I wanted to begin just by telling you a little bit about my own story. So uh, I came to faith in Christ uh, some, sometime in the summer going into my junior year of high school. And before that time, I'd been raised in a Christian home. I knew about Jesus, didn't know him personally. He was really on the fringes, the periphery of my life, and really was was at the very center of my life. My existence was surfing. I was into surfing. I did competitive surfing. I just loved surfing. And uh, it was my identity. It was what gave me worth and value. And I wanted to be popular and cool and all of this stuff. And... uh, and then in, my, in the summer going into my junior year of high school, I was invited to a youth group by a friend. And that night, the youth pastor challenged us to begin reading our Bibles. And I took him up on that challenge that evening, and I had no idea how transformative that commitment would be in my life. And so going home that night, I began reading through the New Testament, a chapter every night before I went to bed. Sometimes I'd go out to a keg party with my brother and my friends and come home and read the Bible before I went to bed. And, you know, over time, over the course of that summer, Jesus began to transform my heart and life through his word. And Jesus, who was at the periphery, all of a sudden moved to the center. 
And I, I began to, to become very passionate about Jesus and following Jesus. And I don't know a day or a time in that summer, but I do know this. When I entered my junior year of high school, I was a different person than I was in my sophomore year. And, um, and I, you know, I was, I was a, we used the phrase back then, on fire, at least my youth pastor did. You know, I was an on-fire Christian. You know, I went to church uh, almost every day of the week. On Monday nights, we went out to hear Greg Laurie. On Tuesday nights, I went to my friend's uh, youth group. On Wednesday night, I went to my own youth group. On Thursday night, we had a Bible study at my house. On Friday night, Bible study at the youth pastor's house. On Saturday nights, out street witnessing. On Sunday mornings, we'd go back to church. On Sunday nights, prayer meeting with a bunch of my friends at the house. And, uh, and I became this voracious Bible reader. I'd spend an hour in prayer and in the Bible every day, you know, at getting up at five or six in the morning. And I was telling my friends about Jesus and bringing them to church. And, and in many ways, it was just a wonderful, wonderful season in my Christian life. And yet looking back, I've come to discover that there was something malformed in that season about my faith. And if I could sum up the problem in one word, it would be the word dualism. Dualism. You say, well, that's an odd thing to say was malformed about your faith. It's actually something that is problematic with a lot of Christians I've interacted with over the years. It was what I was seeing in myself. Dualism is when you cultivate a split view of reality. Dualism is when you divide up the world into the sacred and the secular. And the sacred is your religious, your church life. It's stuff dealing with God. And so, you know, in this box, I, I had, you know, uh, church attendance. And uh, I had, of course, my Bible reading. Of course, I, I spent time in prayer, and that was in my sacred box. Um, uh, we spent time in fellowship. This is a muffin. It was supposed to be a donut, which is the emblem of Christian fellowship. And then, of course, uh, I would bring uh, my friends to church, and that was all in my sacred box. And this, for me, was what mattered in life. This was what was important. And then there was this other box, which was everything else in life. It was the secular box. And, of course, in this, I had my uh, play. And, uh, you know, of course, in here was arts and entertainment and uh, work, you know, fit in here. Um, for some, retirement fits in here. This is an older dude with uh, a velour suit on, a little blue velour. He's about ready to go on a cruise. That was in there. Of course, uh, technology or innovation goes in here. Um, uh, education went in here. I did geometry, and I was asked to write essays on the catcher on the rye, and I just didn't, I was like, what, what's the point of all of that? I just didn't understand, didn't seem to have anything to do with God and the Christian life. And so I, I divided my world up into the sacred and the secular, and of course, in the, uh, the secular was uh, money and it, larger world economics and finance and all of that. And I know I'm not alone, many, many, many Christians kind of wrestle with this tension between what they consider the sacred, their, their church, their religious life, and then the rest of life. And, and they, they know instinctively that we are to follow Jesus in the whole of life, but we just can't really make sense because we live out of this dualistic framework that creates this dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. And, and there's basic strategies, I think, that Christians 
engage in to deal with this dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. You know, the first strategy, I think, is just to keep them apart. Uh, a few years back, I had a class on political theology in Washington, D.C. that was taught by Mike McCurry, who was the former uh, White House chief of staff, or the press secretary, I think, for the Clinton administration. And uh, it was interesting because after he left the White House, he had this spiritual renewal in his own heart and life, and he recovered his faith. And he said after that moment, he ran into all these people who he knew from the hill or from Capitol Hill that, uh, that, that came up and said, oh, you're a Christian, I am too. And he would just look at them and think, how is it that you're a Christian? How, why? You know, like you? Because he saw them at work. He saw how they talked. He saw how they did politic. And they just kept their, their religious life very separated from their, the rest of their life. And that's the strategy many people employ. Of course, the second strategy, uh, the one that was my favorite strategy when I was in high school, was I tried to take my sacred life and bring some of that into my secular world in order to give this world and the time I spent their value. And so when I went to, to school, sometimes we'd, we'd do a, a prayer meeting at school, and uh, sometimes I'd, I'd bring my Bible to school so that I wouldn't waste time. I could read it out in the quad at uh, break time. And, uh, you know, um, sometimes I try to witness to my friends at school. This lady looks quite older, actually. She doesn't look like she's a high school student, but it was all I had. So, but that's another strategy is we try to take some of the sacred, we bring it into the secular, kind of like, well, maybe we can give it some value if we bring some of this stuff in here. But the premise is, is that this doesn't have any intrinsic worth in and of itself, now, there's a, a third strategy that we uh, take, and that's when we actually try to take a sacred uh, stuff or a sacred label and actually apply it over the, cent the secular. And uh, Christians, of course, do this all the time. Uh, they take something secular like music, art, a calendar, a t-shirt, a breath mint, and they put a Jesus label on it. They create a second-rate version of it, get it made as cheaply as possible, oftentimes by slave labor in a developing world country, and then they sell it to a, mark, a market niche of uh, Christian consumers. And I, I think probably one of the most egregious uh, examples of this that I've seen are the Testaments. Have you guys seen this before? You pass the word by giving somebody a breath for it meant powerful, fresh breath and a powerful message. Isn't that terrible? Um, a fourth strategy I think that we try to employ to kind of like deal with this tension is, is we try to then put the, the secular skills, the stuff out here in the service of the sacred. And so, you know, we might, um, you know, uh, if we're a teacher and we're skilled at teaching, we might go in and teach a Sunday school class to kind of like give uh, that skill value. Or uh, maybe what we'll do is um, if we have a boat, uh, we'll offer it to the church staff to do a little day retreat. And if any of you has a boat and you'd like to offer it in service of the sacred, the church staff for a day retreat, we would welcome that here. And of course, uh, we take uh, a bit of our money and we give some of that over here. Uh, we, we think if we give a little bit of our money over here to God, then the rest of it, we can do with it whatever we want. But you see, in each one of these strategies, the problem of dualism remains. It is a split view of reality where there's the sacred, the God stuff, and then there's the rest of stuff of life. 
Well, somebody says, well, what is the alternative to, the, to this dichotomy, to the dualism? And the alternative is the holistic vision of life that Paul gives us in his letter to the church in Colossae. And listen to this passage in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to how Paul actually, uh, he, he just deconstructs this dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, And in everything, in how much? In everything, whatever you do, in word or in deed, at home or at the office, uh, in the neighborhood or at the park, in economics or politics, in business or in entertainment, in, in arts or in architecture. He says, in whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything. How much? Everything. Do you hear how comprehensive of a vision that the Apostle Paul has of the Christian life? He doesn't have this sacred and, and secular uh, view of life. Instead, he says, everything in life should be brought underneath the rule of King Jesus. It's interesting, even in this passage, because uh, in the context, the prior verse deals not with life in the world, but with life in gathered worship. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. So there he's addressing a lot of the sacred stuff, you know, that we might consider gathered worship, singing songs, dwelling in God's word. But then in the very next verse, he talks about the rest of life in everything, whatever you do in everything. And he brings these two things together because for him, there is no dichotomy. There's not your sacred and your secular. There is, there is only life and how you are living it before the face of God. John Stott put it like this. He said, the living God is the God of both nature and religion of the sacred as well as the secular. Everything is sacred in the sense that it belongs to God and nothing is secular in the sense that it is excluded from God. Our God is often too small because he is too religious. We imagine that he is chiefly interested in religion, religious buildings, religious activities, religious books. Of course he is concerned with these things, but only if they are related to the whole of life. But let's just press this a little bit deeper because Paul's vision of a comprehensive Christian life in chapter three is rooted in his comprehensive vision of the cosmic Christ in chapter one. And actually the key word that ties these two sections in three and one together is this word, everything. In the Greek, it's translated sometimes all, all things, uh, sometimes everything, but in the Greek, it's the same Greek word, panta. Can we all say that together? Panta. And Paul in chapter one of Colossians makes this stunning claim about Jesus's relationship to everything. And the claim in this passage is either the craziest claim ever made about a person in the history of the world, or it is the key to the meaning of everything. And notice four ways in which he uses this word everything in this text. First, he says everything was made by him. He says, for by him everything was created 
things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Everything has been created through him. God is the infinite beauty behind every act of beauty. He is the creative mind that is the primal source for all creative expression. He he is the eternal ocean of love from which every act of love flows. He is the power and authority from which all power and authority in this world is only a derivative. He is the infinite brilliance behind every kind of innovation that is so brilliant in our world, ranging from an iPhone to a, a Tesla. Behind it is the God who created people in his own image to reflect his creativity, his ingenuity, and his innovative strength and power. So everything was made by him. Not only all the stuff around us that we see and enjoy that is so brilliant and beautiful, he gave us, he created all of our capacity to enjoy and to take in everything he has created. He has given us sight and hearing and touch and taste. I mean, what must God be like if he created taste buds to flood your senses with all of that juicy deliciousness of whatever is your favorite cut of meat? Everything that is was called into being by God. He is the ground of our existence, the ground of being on which everything else hangs. But not only that, everything that is coheres in him. Look at what it says. He says it says, he is before everything and in him everything holds together. Our breath is on borrow. Our existence is upheld by another in whom we live and move and have, we, have our being. And that's just not true for us. That's true of all structures in the universe. All the particles, all the atoms cohere. They are held together by this personal divine power that called all things into being. And so everything was made by him. Everything coheres in him. And everything was made for him. Look at what it says. Everything has been created through him and for him. God himself, this infinite ocean of love, is our ultimate home. God is what our hearts were made for. Ultimately, this universe is going to be flooded with the divine presence, that love that called all things into being. We were created to ultimately enter into that eternal dance of love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, called up into the dance to enter into union with God. This is what we were made for. We were made by him. We cohere in him. And we were made for him. Everything, everything that is ultimately finds its root, its origin, It's primal ground in God. Now, of course, this universe we inhabit with all of its creativity and ingenuity and brilliance and all of its flavors and all of its sights and everything that we so enjoy and take in all the time, it's not only created and good, it has also fallen. The world we inhabit, the universe, is estranged from God. Because of human sin, we have fractured the goodness of God's creation. 
And so economic systems and political systems and governmental systems are affected by sin. And of course, you and I and stuff we touch, our families, our marriages, um, our kids, uh, our, our roommates, our friends, they are, they are affected by our own estrangement from our Creator. But here's the good news in this text, the final everything. It says everything in Christ that has been estranged from God has now been reconciled through him. Look at what it says in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The personal divine agency and uncontested power, that unfettered freedom, that infinite love and beauty and truth, which brought everything into being, took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He laid aside all of that power. He embraced weakness. And in his his infinite love, he became concrete and fleshly and killable so that he might lay down his life and absorb in himself all of the injustice, all of the wrong, all of the estrangement that you and I deserve. He bore it in himself so that he might bring it to a final and complete end so that all things might be reconciled to God through him, through him to reconcile himself everything, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Everything was created by him. Everything coheres in him. Everything was created for him. Everything now has been reconciled through his own gracious, generous, self-giving, sacrificial love, which he was on full display on the cross. In light of all of that, Paul comes back to Colossians 3 and he says, now, for those who have been reconciled to God through this Jesus... And listen, if you are here today and you feel a deep sense of estrangement in your own heart and you feel this this gap, this hole, this emptiness, I, I want you to know you were made for God. And God loves you and his love became concrete for you so that you might enter into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. He came so that all who are estranged might be reconciled back to the father. And he came not just to reconcile individuals, but everything that's kind of been out of whack in creation to to reconcile it back to God. And he says, in light of all of that, now the call for those who have been reconciled who have been brought home, who have heard the call from Jesus to follow me, the call upon all of our lives, the challenge issued is now in everything you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Now, I wanna close just by asking this question. If that is the invitation and challenge that is placed upon those who are followers of Jesus, what might it require or demand of us this morning? Now, of course, the answer to that question is going to be found in whoever's calling right now. No, the, the, the answer to that question is the work of a lifetime. That's what the Christian life is all about is exploring this. We're going to be unpacking just a handful of the many, many, many 
questions that need to be addressed in the weeks ahead about what this looks like in, in all of life. But I want to just pause in our closing today and mention two things that it will demand of us. Number one, it is going to demand our intention. The forces around us of conformity are strong, and they are relentless. We are staring at them all day long on the phone, constantly being formed and shaped in our imagination about our neighbor. Oftentimes, what we're absorbing is turning us away from our neighbor, turning us against our neighbor because they voted for somebody different than we did, or they've got different political ideology than we do, and so we turn away from them constantly bombarding us with fear and anxiety about everything that's going wrong and everything's falling apart and, oh no, what are you going to do? I know, get this politician in place or go out and buy this product. And we're constantly narcoticizing our pain and our anxiety and our fears with pills and beer and sugar and shopping and Netflix binging. And all of this stuff is just absorbing our... The forces of conforming to this world are strong. We have got to be intentional if we're going to break out and live an alternative way of life that is given to us in this text. Martin Luther King Jr. put it like this. He said, our planet teeters on the brink of annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride, hatred, and selfishness are enthroned in our lives. And men do reverence before false gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. That is the challenge, that's the invitation to us, is to embrace this call to be a creative, creatively maladjusted, non-conforming minority in this world. And that requires intention, it requires choice, it requires conversations, intentional conversations with each other, it, it requires intentional action for us, and it requires intentional reflection on what we're doing with our time, what we're doing with our resources, how we're spending our days, how we're treating our, our roommate or our neighbor, how we're viewing our education or our major or the topics we're engaged in. It requires all kinds of reflection and creative engagement and thinking about what might this look like if I viewed all of life through the lens of the God who made me and gave us this world as gift. This world is broken and fallen, but he's redeeming all things through Christ. What might it look like to engage in all of life in light of this grand, beautiful narrative of reality? And that's the invitation. That's the call. Now, of course, this is going to take us working together and talking together. And I don't think we do this nearly enough. And if we do, I don't think we do it nearly seriously enough. I remember uh, a few years back, I've shared this story with some of you before, but uh, we invited a dear friend of ours uh, to church. Uh, she had never been to church before. And uh, she was um, coming with us for the first time. And I got up and preached, and it was her first experience with the whole thing. And we talked in the sermon about some issues regarding caring for the poor and adjusting finances and all of this. Anyway, we went to lunch with her afterwards. And at lunch, she was like, okay, you guys, we have to talk about this sermon. 
because I think I'm going to need to make some different choices in my life. And she started talking about, you know, uh, the house cleaner that she had and what she might need to do differently and all this stuff. I said, whoa, 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 we don't do that after church. Like, you're way too new at this thing. Like, we go and we listen and we go home, we go back to life as usual. But listen, we can't go back to life as usual. Life as usual is not life-giving. It's draining, it's anxiety and fear-producing. It's stressful, it's painful. We need a different way of being human in this world and we need each other to figure out what that looks like and we need each other to feel like what it looks like to carry out our mission as agents of reconciliation in the whole of life and our vocations, our professions, our, our schooling and, and every other sphere of life. You know, there was a, a group of, of chicken farmers that I heard about from, uh, I had a class with uh, Dr. Rich Mao, who was the former president of Fuller Theological Seminary. And he was talking about these issues. And as an example, uh, he talked about chicken farmers in Canada who had gotten together and formed the, uh, the, the Christian Chicken Farmers Association of Canada. And he said, and in their meetings, they would have these conversations. You know, they would say, look, you know, we know that, uh, that a chicken is not a human being, but we also know they're also not a hunk of meat. They are part of God's created world. What does it look like to honor these chickens in all of their chicken, chickenly createdness? But that's the kind of creative, imaginative, you know, conversations we need to have. And, and you know, Robert, uh, Pastor Robert, in his you know, in his doctoral work, he, he worked on this conversation of like, what does it look like to take the Christian worldview and bring it to bear on the whole realm of fashion? And he wrote a book on the subject and he's been engaging with some of the top fashion uh, theorists in the world because the Christian worldview has something to say about every sphere of life because we serve the one who created all of life. And so number one, it requires intention, but secondly, it's gonna require Love. I don't know about you, but some days I just feel like um, it's, it's hard to get up out of bed and plunge myself into the work of the day when you're feeling overwhelmed with the stress of, of the kids, the stress of work. And, um, you know, sometimes some of you are like, I, I, you know, like, I'm just lucky I got to church today. And here you're talking to me about envisioning all of life through the lens of the Christian worldview. Like, I am overwhelmed, brother. And listen, uh, most of us, if you're like me, you're ignorant about most topics in the world. Some of you, if you're like me, you don't think you're ignorant about those topics. You pontificate about them all the time because you know them so well, you know. Um, but we're ignorant about so much stuff. Our world is so complex, you know, political systems and economic systems and, and you know, military and policing and the judicial, you know, and all, it's all so complicated. And of course, we're complicated individuals. We all got our stuff, our deep issues that go way back to our childhood, you know? We all got daddy issues and mommy issues and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, and, and like, like, it's so overwhelming. And, and look, I, I'm not going to, you know, go out and get a whole degree on, you know, write an academic thesis on a theology of fashion. <laughs> Listen, I don't know all that is involved in following Jesus into every square inch of human existence. 
that knowledge goes way, 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 way beyond my pay grade. But I do know this, that the reconciliation of everything ultimately happened at the cross. And that reconciliation was brought into this world through God's own gracious, glad, self-giving, in, in a stunning act of breathtaking love on the cross for humanity, bearing our pain, giving us his life. And here is how reconciliation and life came to the world. And so listen, listen, Jesus doesn't reconcile all things by writing academic papers and he doesn't reconcile all things by getting high influential positions of leadership and authority. He doesn't reconcile all things by forming unions and getting together uh, committees. All of that stuff can be useful, but at the heart where reconciliation of everything begins to break into all the different parts of our life is when we step into each one of those square inches willing to bear pain have difficult conversations and extend grace and forgiveness and tremendous love to the people we manage, to the people we work with, to the people we go to school with, to the people in our classrooms, to the people in our neighborhood, to the person we're married to, to the, the children we might be raising or the grandchildren we might be co-parenting. Like it all breaks into the world through love. You know, it was uh, Brother Lawrence who said this, we ought not to be wary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. May God enable us to be those who openly receive the love of God into our own life, that receive that word over Jesus, that Jesus speaks over us, mine, you belong to me. We receive that love and then we go out and we become agents of that love into every square inch of our lives. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now as those who have been reconciled to yourself through your son, Jesus. God, today we, we afresh lay down our hostility, our cynicism, our callousness. God, our unbelief, our malaise, our boredom. God, we lay it all down at your feet and we just pray that you would reinvigorate our hearts again with your love and that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might be your agents of love in this world into every square inch of our lives. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.